Welcome to the Anthemus Podcast, a slightly irreverent exploration of the stories and histories behind national anthems and the songs which define nations. Today we're talking about Iceland, and we'll go a little bit further back in history for this episode and cover roughly a millennium of Icelandic history. Now, Iceland has but one anthem, we'll say, at the top. It's called Lofsungur, which simply means hymn. And this is the part where Josh wanted me to say that this is the name of an upcoming Sigaros album. But a true Sigaros fan knows that Jonzi mostly sings in a made-up hybrid language called Valenska, or Hopelandic in English. Or, to borrow from their 2008 single, Gobbledygook. Uh, a bit of a tangent there <laughs> to talk about Sigaros. The Icelandic anthem uh, in its native tongue is also known as Oguvor's Lands, or O God of Our Land. This is a good time to go ahead and pre-apologize for all the butchered uh, Scandinavian tongue uh, <laughs> that we will bring to the table. Yeah, real on the nose, the Icelandic peoples. <laughs> Very much like the U.S. anthem, the Icelandic anthem is interesting in that it was originally written for a specific event, and it probably never occurred to either the composer or the poet lyricist that it would eventually become the anthem at all. There are not too many stories that we've come across as yet where the song that was written uh, was composed with no intention of being an anthem. So that's actually pretty cool. Yeah. And with that preamble, let's dive in. In the year of our Lord, 870, the Swedish Viking explorer Garhwar Svaverson was the first person to circumnavigate Iceland and confirm that it was, in fact, an island. Four years later, the first settlers, led by a Viking named Ingolfur Arnonsson, decided to stay permanently and ride out the winter, and thus Iceland was born. Going out of my way to make sure that Robert gets all of the trickiest name of pronunciations this episode. <sighs> Uh, we Heavy sigh. <laughs> we pause for a quick etymology interlude. Uh, you've probably heard the story that Iceland and Greenland were so named to discourage people from overpopulating the more temperate island. Uh, sadly, it, it turns out that this episode is apparently apocryphal and probably not actually hmm. like, really true. Uh, the current frontrunner as the real story is a little bit more of a downer. After a few early explorers named the island after themselves in turns, including our friend Garhwar, who simply named it Garhwar's Island, a Viking named Floki Vilgrarsson uh, came to settle the island. Sidebar to the sidebar, those of you who are fans of the show Vikings, this is the same Floki who was close allies with the great Ragnar Lothbrok. In route to the island, his daughter unfortunately drowned, and then all of his livestock starved to death upon arrival. The sagas say that the rather despondent Floki climbed a mountain and saw a fjord, which is now called Arnonfjordur, uh, full of icebergs, which led him to give the island its new and present name. With the etymology out of the way, we enter the Icelandic Age of Settlement. After the first settlement in 874, there was a rush of settlers flooding the country from Ireland, Scotland, and of course, Scandinavia. 
Most of the country was occupied within a couple of decades, and by 930, most of the island had been claimed by somewhere between 4,300 and 24,000 people. Not a terribly specific number, and I guess not terribly specific records at that time. Adding to the list of fun Icelandic facts, based on the timeline, Iceland and Greenland are likely the penultimate major land masses to be settled by humans. In this case, the last was New Zealand. Next up, Christianity in Iceland. As the eventual anthem is a Christian hymn, it feels appropriate to talk a bit about the adoption of Christianity in the country. Obviously, the large majority of the initial settlers during the Icelandic Age of Settlement were pagan, worshipping the Aesir, the Norse gods. Beginning in 980, there arrived a few small waves of Christian missionaries who didn't have much success on the island. However, in 988, a Norwegian prince and the future king of Norway named Olaf Tryggvason met a seer while raiding in the Syracusan Islands. The seer told him, You will become a renowned king and do many celebrated deeds. You will bring many men to faith and baptism, which will be great for both your rule and the people of your kingdom. You shall know I am right by these signs. When you return to your ships, many of your own men will conspire and mutiny against you. Many of them will die, and you will be gravely wounded. Yet, after seven days, you will be healed of your wounds and shall immediately let yourself be baptized a Christian. So after leaving the seer, Olaf was indeed immediately attacked by a band of mutineers and very nearly killed. After surviving the attempt on his life, he saw some truth in the seer's promise and immediately converted. When he became king of Norway in 995, he set about rapidly and violently converting his subjects throughout the region, often on pain of torture or death. And if you're looking for an interesting read, go check out the Wikipedia article on Olaf's life. It is epic. Or the Cliff Notes version, otherwise known as the Saga of King Olaf, written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. This process also extended to Iceland, where Olaf sent a man named Stefnir Thorgelson as his emissary. The man destroyed pagan sanctuaries and eventually, through his marauding, became so unpopular that he himself was declared an outlaw. Olaf then took several sons of Icelandic chieftains hostage and declared Iceland to be cut off from all trade until they decided to adopt Christianity. Eventually, conflict between followers of the two religions on the island caused enough of a problem to threaten civil war. So instead, the matter was submitted to arbitration, where the All Thing, the Icelandic Council of Elders, chose a pagan law speaker who suggested, quote, one law and one religion to unify the country. And one ring to rule them all. <laughs> And so, Christianity was adopted by consensus as the official religion by law around 1000 AD, conveniently the same year that Olaf himself died in battle. In Icelandic, this event is known as the Kristnitaka, literally the taking of Christianity. Those heathens that didn't wish to convert were permitted to practice in secret, and so Norse paganism persisted among segments of the population for quite a long time afterwards and remains practiced, albeit by about 
1% of the population in Iceland to this day. I'm willing to bet that that 1% all wear corpse paint with long stringy hair, (laughs) dressed in black. And now we tackle the merger of Iceland into Norway. The Icelandic Commonwealth lasted until the 13th century, and eventually the political system devised by original settlers proved insufficient against the increasing power of Icelandic chieftains. The infighting and civil strife led to an agreement to sign a charter known as the Old Covenant in 1262, which ended the Commonwealth and brought Iceland under the Norwegian crown. Possession of Iceland passed from the Kingdom of Norway to the Kalmar Union in 1415, when the kingdoms of Norway, Denmark, and Sweden were combined. After the breakup of the Union in 1523, Iceland remained a Norwegian dependency as part of Denmark, Norway. Around the middle of the 16th century, as part of the Protestant Reformation, King Christian III of Denmark began to impose Lutheranism on all of his subjects. Jan Arason, the last Catholic bishop of Holar, stood in armed opposition to the conversion for two years against what he saw as the Danes disrupting Icelandic culture and furthering Danish influence on a once proud and independent Icelandic people. In, in his mind, I imagine this is like a crude early form of nationalism in a way. He was eventually captured and beheaded in 1550, along with two of his sons. The country subsequently became officially Lutheran, and Lutheranism has since remained the dominant religion. Uh, Now it's actually known as the Church of Iceland, and according to a survey conducted in 2016, it's practiced by roughly 70% of the population, thereabouts. And that's why all of the Scandinavian... Uh, now Midwestern American dwellers uh, have such a a chokehold on Lutheranism. And I know all of this thanks to A Prairie Home Companion and its many stupid dad jokes (laughs) about Lutheranism in the region. The period during the late 1800s saw music in Iceland develop and flourish. Though many of their initial composers had to study and ply their trade abroad due to insufficient opportunities at home, many chose to bring back what they had learned to Iceland. One of these musicians was Sveinbjörn Sveinbjörnsson, who was the first person from his homeland to pursue an international career as a composer. He worked in Edinburgh, Scotland during the early 1870s and wrote the music for the Icelandic anthem, Lofsunger, in 1874. By 1922, the song became so well known and loved throughout Iceland that, in recognition of this, the Althing, again the Icelandic parliament, endowed Sveinbjörnsson with a state pension, which is not bad. The lyrical portion of the anthem was penned by Matthias Jokumsson, one of the best-loved poets in the country, who was also a priest. It was written to coincide with the 1874 festivities to honor the millennial anniversary of the Norse arrival on the island. It is for this reason that the full translation of the anthem's title is The Millennial Hymn of Iceland. The text for the service that week was Psalm 90, which helped inspire the work. The song itself was first played on August 2nd of that year at a service at the Reykjavik Cathedral to commemorate the milestone. 
with the king of Denmark and hence the king of Iceland, Christian IX in attendance. However, the song was not officially adopted as the country's national anthem until 70 years later in 1944 when, spoiler alert, Icelanders voted in a referendum to end their state's personal union with Denmark and to become a republic. It is with this that we drink from the gilded goblet of anthems. Here is Lofsunger. That was the Icelandic national anthem, Lofsungur. Although the Icelandic national anthem consists of three full stanzas, only the first one is sung on a regular basis. It is also notorious for being an extremely challenging song to sing due to its large vocal range of high and low registers, which I'm sure you heard, uh, and the melody spans an interval of a minor 14th. It's why the gods bestowed Bjork upon us May they be praised. May they be praised. So, firstly, man, oh man, that song is so good. Like it's, it it is a hymn, I guess. But there's something almost. <laughs> it is definitely a hymn. Yeah, like <laughs> it's the name of the song. I, I mean, but like it has like such a. I think like our preconceived notions and prejudices about hymns in particular is they're always kind of like, 
Oh God, what on earth is my head? Like there is, there's so many, like there is so much like use of dynamics in that song in particular that it actually has this kind of almost like operatic quality to it that I really, really like. It's, it is an incredibly emotive song. There were moments sure. of it that reminded me a little bit of the the Christian hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, that yeah. kind of swells yeah. up to a point yeah. and then kind of hits a little bit of a lull. So those crescendos in there, they they peak briefly before it returns to a very somber close. Yeah. And in that way, I feel like it's almost kind of funereal. Like there is something about it that almost sounds like like you're at a funeral. And yeah. there's a little bit in the lyrics that that kind of point to that eternity passing away. A uh, brief interlude for like music theory nerddom uh, very quickly. So the minor 14th that we alluded to earlier is uh, a total of 22 semitones, uh, which basically means that you're a full step down from a perfect 15th, which is a double octave. So in layman's terms, low note, very far away from high note uh, that I will demonstrate now with my handy dandy guitar. So here you have your root note, followed by your first octave, followed by basically a minor seventh. So that is the full interval between the lowest note in the melody and the highest, which is, first of all, not that pleasant on the ears because it doesn't resolve to the full octave, but that is a bitch to perform. And so they, they rather intelligently, I think, hand off the melody between multiple parts, which again is something that like we don't really, we certainly haven't heard it in any anthem that we have done before, and I don't think is is going to be a common thing amongst anthems that we hear henceforth. So this really is, I think, like kind of a unique thing that takes something that could be just like kind of stayed and boring in a hymn and actually does some really interesting theory things with it. This is, again, a a very powerful but intricately composed song, and I, I really dig that. One of the key elements you think of in a national anthem is that uh, it's something that people, uh, the average Icelandic citizen or Spanish citizen or Japanese citizen, might sing uh, at a national event, uh, certainly at a sporting event, maybe at theater or or something else. Uh, This is kind of near impossible unless you're Mike Patton uh, (laughs) to cover the full range of 22 semitones. The American National Anthem is another anthem that gets a lot of stick for for having, I mean, if you have time, YouTube Carl Lewis trying to sing the National Anthem (laughs) uh, just starts out way too high and just can't, hold on, like, (laughs) rockets, hold on, I got it, like, it's it's pretty rough. And the rockets, Uh oh, I'll make up for it now. For the land of the free. So, having covered a little bit of the musicality of the song, let's talk about the lyrics. Uh, As we said, only the first stanza is typically sung, and it goes Our country's God, our country's God, we worship thy name in its wonder sublime. 
The sons of the heavens are set in thy crown by the legions, the ages of time. With thee is each day as a thousand years, each thousand of years but a day, eternity's flower with its homage of tears that reverently passes away. Iceland's thousand years, Iceland's thousand years, eternity's flower with its homage of tears that reverently passes away. Beautiful uh, and a little bit of a downer. Yeah, I, it's it's interesting to, to hear a song that is that is so much about uh, reverence to the sublime that that also I think just I guess is chiefly aware in some ways of I mean literally how much time has elapsed uh, as well I mean like the lyrics themselves as as we have found with kind of everything else are like really on the nose a bit mm-hmm. it's like what do we need to talk about how awesome God is and how long it's been since we got here nailed it it really is more so than I think any of the other anthems that we've covered almost just a repurposed you know kind of standard Christian hymn there's very little uh about there, there's really nothing about a king uh nothing about a monarch there's little about the geography though it does reference the land broadly and it, it is extremely wrapped up uh, in this kind of idea of Christianity and, and a sort of Christian hymn. Yeah, and about the eternalness of God uh, existing. There's a there's a line in the second verse that's, Our spirits most fervent we place in thy care, Lord God of our fathers, from age unto age, where we recognize that though our time on earth is incredibly finite and probably incredibly short because— Man, those 17th and 18th centuries where we were like starving to death and dealing with smallpox and volcanic eruptions and all this other stuff, like life expectancy in Iceland was probably not awesome until maybe the late 1800s. Despite all of that, we know that God is eternal and he continues to watch over all as we pass from era to era to era. But that sort of content lyrically um, was uh, a bit of a problem, or it has at least drawn some criticism, yeah? Yeah. So, Lofsunger has come under some criticism in more modern times, as it has been described as a Christian hymn to God with strong religious themes. Fully agree. <laughs> uh, thus, its suitability as the national anthem in Iceland's increasingly secular society of the present day has been challenged, notwithstanding the fact that the country still maintains an official religion in the form of the Church of Iceland. Some have suggested that replacing it with a non-religious song is preferable because it better represents all Icelandic peoples. So you have a song that's impossible to sing, that is highly controversial, and yet still kind of a beautiful anthem. Yeah, so I could ter- I, love it. I could totally see why this would be replaced, but it has a, a real uniqueness, a real sense of identity yeah. in this song, however controversial. Fun fact time. At the time that the song was written, Icelanders usually sang Eldgamla Isafold by Bjarni Thorninson as a national anthem. However, that song had anti-Danish, which was the colonial power, uh, anti-Danish lyrics and was set to the tune of God Save the King. Therefore, O Gud Vorslands, or O God of Our Land, was played as the national anthem when sovereignty was proclaimed in 1918. And after the break, we'll cover the formation of Iceland as a sovereign land.
1814, following the Napoleonic Wars, Denmark-Norway was broken up into two separate kingdoms via the Treaty of Kiel. Here, Iceland remained a Danish dependency, but throughout the 19th century, the country's climate continued to grow colder, literally, resulting in mass emigration to the New World, particularly to the region of Gimli, Manitoba in Canada, which was sometimes referred to as New Iceland. In total, the country lost about a fifth of its total population of 70,000 people. A national consciousness arose in the first half of the 19th century, inspired by romantic and nationalist ideas from mainland Europe. An Icelandic independence movement took shape in the 1850s under the leadership of John Sigurdsson, based on the burgeoning Icelandic nationalism inspired by Fjölnismann and other Danish-educated Icelandic intellectuals. In 1874, Denmark granted Iceland a constitution and limited home rule. This was expanded in 1904, and Hans Hafstein served as the first minister for Iceland in the Danish cabinet. The Danish-Icelandic Act of Union, an agreement with Denmark signed on 1 December 1918 and valid for 25 years, recognized Iceland as a fully sovereign and independent state in a personal union with Denmark. The government of Iceland established an embassy in Copenhagen and requested that Denmark carry out on its behalf certain defense and foreign affairs matters subject to consultation with the Althing. Danish embassies around the world then displayed two coats of arms and two flags, those of the Kingdom of Denmark and those of the Kingdom of Iceland. Iceland's legal position became comparable to those of countries belonging to the Commonwealth of Nations, such as Canada, whose sovereign was Queen Elizabeth II. During World War II, Iceland joined Denmark in asserting neutrality. After the German occupation of Denmark on April 9th of 1940, the Althing replaced the king with a regent and declared that the Icelandic government would take control of its own defense and foreign affairs. A month later, the British armed forces conducted Operation Fork, the invasion and occupation of the country, violating Icelandic neutrality. At which point the Icelandics declared, what the fork, man? (sighs) (laughs) The sigh isn't coming across quite as strongly as I'd like it to, for which we will buy better equipment. In 1941, the government of Iceland, friendly to Britain, invited the then-neutral U.S. to take over its defense so that Britain could use its troops elsewhere. On the 31st of December 1943, the Danish-Icelandic Act of Union expired after 25 years. Beginning on the 20th of May 1944, Icelanders voted in a four-day plebiscite on whether to terminate the personal union with Denmark, abolish the monarchy, and establish a republic. The vote was 97% to end the Union and 95% in favor of the new Republican Constitution. Iceland formally became a republic on the 17th of June, 1944, with Svein Björnsson as its first president. In 1946, the U.S. Defense Force left Iceland. The nation formally became a member of NATO on the 30th of March, 1949, amid domestic controversy and riots. Also a rather fascinating read. They were, there were a lot of people that were really opposed to it becoming a NATO member. Hmm. Uh, and lastly, on the 5th of May, 1951, a defense agreement was signed with the United States. 
American troops returned to Iceland as the Icelandic Defense Force and remained throughout the Cold War. The United States finally withdrew the last of its forces on the 30th of September, 2006. Which brings us just up to about today and concludes Iceland. About 1,000 years of history we've covered, but sovereignty didn't come until about the last 100 years, really. Yeah. And they became a republic about 50 years ago. And here we stand today. So, thanks for listening to The Anthemist. Of course, if you have any questions, comments, or strongly worded emails about anything we've covered, send them to anthemistpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, Josh, what great nation will we sing about next week? Uh, We're going to be covering Guatemala, where we will explore the origins of the phrase Banana Republic. Ooh, can't wait to hear it. For The Anthemist, I'm Robert Winship. And I'm Josh Hugel. See you next week.